Welcome to Therapists Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real-life matters. Welcome to episode 27. We have a great interview for you today with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. Tina, who among many amazing things, is the author of two New York Times bestselling books, No Drama Discipline and The Whole Brain Child. She wrote these along with Dr. Dan Siegel, who is one of our prior guests on Therapist Uncensored. So today, Tina's going to talk to us about the science of parenting, and you really don't want to miss this one. Even if you're not a parent, I promise you're going to get a lot out of this episode. But first, a quick reminder about our new feature, Ask a Therapist. At the end of the show, we're going to pick a question from our listeners that we think is useful for everybody, and we're just going to give short, sweet, no-nonsense answers. Now, the question and topic ideas that we've been getting, by the way, from our listeners have been so rich. Keep them coming, please. Uh, For example, thank you, Linda from Melbourne. Uh, She also expressed some appreciation to us for our inclusivity uh, for same-sex couples on the show. And Steve from Salt Lake City, well, they both sent really excellent questions. And we appreciate your support and your interest. Okay, well, now let's get right to it. Here's my co-host, Sue Marriott talking with Tina Payne Bryson. So Tina's going to talk to us today about parenting, particularly from a neurobiological standpoint. And yeah, um, actually, would you like to tell us just a little bit about yourself first? Well, the first thing I would say is that I'm a mom to three boys. I have an elementary schooler, a middle schooler, and a high schooler. So I've got kids in each of those kind of, you know, departments of life. I work one day a week um, as a child development specialist at a school. I am the executive director of an interdisciplinary clinical practice, which I'm so excited about. It's an interpersonal neurobiology lens, but we have a variety of uh, professionals, including occupational therapists and educational therapists and functional medicine and neuropsychological testing. And we meet as a team every week to wrestle with cases and ideas and really peel back the layers. And that's really fun. But what I'm probably known for most is I am the co-author with Dan Siegel of the books, The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, and the upcoming books, The Yes Brain and Showing Up. So that's what I get really excited about talking about is the work with Dan and um, applying interpersonal neurobiology to parents, educators, and clinicians. Well, we are super excited because we haven't yet spoken about parents specifically, but our audience was probably pretty familiar with the general ideas of IPNB. So it'll be fun to apply them. Yeah. Particularly because parenting is such a challenge and can really challenge our systems, you know, where we lose our minds and all the time. I always kind of want to make the joke when I stand up with an audience to be like, parenting is a magical journey. And then them all sit there and look at me like, what the hell are you talking about? Because (laughs) we all know. Journey into the depths. Yeah. We're in the trenches. It is so hard. I mean, even when we're working to be really intentional and thoughtful, it is just so, um, it really can push us to places we didn't know we, we could get to, but also it really kind of opens up stuff for us to wrestle with that we didn't know we needed to as well. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, from a neurobiological point of view, what I think about is neural networks and how the brain is like an association machine. And so when something becomes familiar, even in the depths of our neurobiology and and of course, when I'm talking about neurobiology, I want to just be really clear. I'm not just talking about the brain in our skull. I'm talking about the embodied brain. So I mean the entire nervous system in the body. So even if I have a familiar feeling in my body of like frustration or, or a pit of my stomach feeling or shame or something like that, it activates anything associated with that in, in the brain. And so 
I think we, we replay things that, that became part of our implicit memory that we're not even aware about. And so all that just gets activated, even as our kids reach new stages and, and, you know, new places of independence or challenging us in new ways. And it's like, we just get the opportunity to kind of revisit how those neural networks are getting activated in our own brain. And so what are some of the things that you've learned through all, you mentioned all kinds of experience, including being a parent yourself, that you would like to um, share with our audience? Well, you know, I think that one of the things I want to say too, is that a lot of professionals, regardless of if they're mental health or otherwise, you know, they often are dealing with parenting issues, you know, not their own, but other people, you know, people come, come to them and say, whether you're a teacher or a, or a therapist or whatever, I don't know what to do about my kid or here's what's going on. And, and it's interesting because a lot of therapists, even who are, you know, don't see kids deal with a lot of parenting stuff, but it's not something we really ever talk about in our professional training that much typically. That's true. I think regardless of whether we're looking at it as parents ourselves or as professionals supporting parents um, or working with kids directly, I think one of the most important things we can bring to what's happening in the dynamic between ourselves and the child or even just in the child's behavior is curiosity. And I think even mental health professionals do a lot of looking at the behavior without curiously peeling back the layers of what's behind the behavior. Now, sometimes as mental health people, we might even say things like, well, I'm going to be curious about what's underneath this behavior. We might wonder about trauma history or we might, you know, um, wonder if there's an organic diagnosis or something else going on that could cause the behavior. But we're not really peeling back the layers to see that behavior is often communication, almost always communicating something. And what I love to kind of do is to say, okay, we've got a kid here. Let's just take basic anxiety. Okay. So that's something we all feel. It's something that all therapists deal with at some level, educators, anyone. So you've got a kid who is anxious and what that might look like is oppositional behavior. It might look like shutting down. It might look like, um, teasing other kids. It might be, you know, problematic behavior. But when we think about anxiety, I know in my training, a lot of what I would say is, okay, well, I'd want to know if there's a family history. I'd want to know if there's any trauma history. Um, have there been any you know, recent changes in the kid's life? So those are the kinds of questions we are all basically trained to do. But when I started thinking about it from an interpersonal neurobiology point of view, I started going, okay, what is anxiety? If we really peel back the layers, it is heightened nervous system arousal. It's like your alarm bells going off, like danger, danger, danger. Jaws music. Jaws music. When there's really isn't something truly dangerous happening, but your body and your brain are perceiving this threat. So you're in this heightened state of nervous system arousal. So then if we chase that out, why would the nervous system be in heightened states of arousal? What's that about? And as I started kind of peeling back the layers in anxiety cases and in other situations where behavior was a problem, I started finding things that I didn't know were there and I wasn't trained as a mental health professional to see. For instance, like a sensory sensory processing challenge right. or um, uh, an uncovered, uh, uh, I mean, a learning disability that hadn't yet been seen, you know, or, or those kinds of things. And so I think if we look at, okay, this kid is communicating that this is, there's something too hard, that they don't yet have the skills to handle it better. And so, you know, one of the things I love to do with parents is ask them to title a list, like make, get a sheet of paper and write on the top of the list behavior problems and start listing them, like cooperation, you know, those kinds of things. 
And then I asked them to cross out the title of the list from behavior problems to retitle it to skills my child still needs to learn. And so those same things are on their cooperation, right? Like, here's a, can I tell a personal story? Please do, yeah. Okay, so one of the stories I love to tell is um, my, uh, my five-year-old and my eight-year-old were having an interaction that escalated. Typical, right? My eight-year-old comes running into the bathroom where I'm brushing my teeth and says, JP five-starred me. Well, I didn't know what that meant, but apparently if you slap someone hard enough on the back, it leaves a handprint that looks like a star. Yeah. So um, I said, I don't know what that means. And he said, well, look at my back. And I lifted his shirt and there, sure enough, was JP's handprint on his back. And so, you know, I comforted him. Are you okay? Do you need me to, you know, put a cool towel on it? He was okay. So then here comes the discipline moment, right? I got to go address the perpetrator. So I go around the corner and my little five-year-old JP is standing there and he is totally in what I would call the red zone. His nervous system is dialed way up. He is super angry and there's physiological changes that go with that. His muscles are tense, his eyes are wide, his jaw is locked, um, his breathing and his heart rate and his blood pressure are all elevated and he's standing there just, you know, just huffing. So I do something in that moment. Now this is because... What I'm about to tell you is because I'm in an integrated state. Now, I have plenty of moments where <laughs> I you know, am a not in an integrated state myself. I flip my lid or I, I act in ways that are terrible. In fact, um, at the end of No Drama Discipline, Dan and I each tell a story about a moment like that. And just as a little teaser... I threatened to remove one of my children's body parts. So, uh, you know, <laughs> oh, that's, good. let's be real. So you're human. Uh, yeah, that's just, <laughs> my nervous system gets dysregulated too. So, but in this moment, I was integrated. I come around the corner and JP's so angry. And so a typical parental response there might be to say something like, why did you hit your brother? I can't believe you hit him. And we're asking questions, but we're not really asking questions. Right. We're lecturing, exactly. we're yelling or, you know, whatever. And then, you know, some parents might um, spank or hit. Some mm-hmm. parents might... Um, yeah, they might give them the five-star back. Give them the five... You want to know what that feels like mm-hmm. kind of thing. Another typical response would be to say, you know, to give a consequence. You clearly can't be with people today, so go to your room. I'm canceling your play date. Right. Um, or go, go to your room and calm down until you're ready to be nice, you know, right. which I hate that message, actually. And I've done it, but I hate that message because it basically tells our kids, when you pull yourself together, then I'm willing to be in relationship with you. Right. right? So those are responses, and I've done several of those. But what I did in that moment is something that's very counterculture and very counterintuitive. And that was, so he's standing there huffing and puffing, and I say, oh, JP, you're so angry. What happened? Come here. And what happens then is I respond to him as if he were physically hurt. He's mm-hmm. emotionally hurt. Right. And he starts to tell me how his brother you know, did something bad to him, and I say, that must have been so frustrating. And I, I basically, what I was doing intentionally because I had the capacity in the moment to do it, was to soothe his nervous system. And that enabled him to drop down into a place where he could be, instead of reactive, he could be receptive. Because the brain is either in a receptive or a reactive state. When he could move into receptivity, that is when the discipline can happen. Because if we go back to the original meaning of the word discipline, it actually doesn't mean to punish at all, which is how our culture typically defines it, It but it means to teach. teach. And if you're in a reactive state of mind, you cannot learn. And so in my mind, this is such a huge cultural shift, I think, for all of us to think, asking ourselves in those questions, is this child ready to learn? 
And am I ready to teach? Right. And so I had to, so in the name of discipline, and of course by that, I mean teaching, my number one job was to get him into this receptive state, which Dan and I will call the green zone in this book we have coming up. So when he could be there, then he was open to learn. And then I could address, you know, what happened there? And you got so angry. And how did you feel that in your body? And I could also say, you really hurt Luke. And when I said that, his little head dropped. And he had this beautiful moment of um, healthy guilt, yeah, not shame, yeah, yeah, yeah. not shame where we know we're defective, but healthy guilt. And if you think about healthy guilt from a, you know, evolutionary neurobiological standpoint, I think it's one of the most effective disciplinarians we have. And it's because when we think about how we had to live in groups of people in order to survive, if you violated the mores of your group, you would get that feeling of guilt, which is a terrible feeling. You don't want to keep doing that behavior. And um, so that kept us from continually violating the mores of our group so we would get, wouldn't get kicked out and eaten by something, right? So I, I'm allowing that feeling to happen. He drops his head. I let it him have attention on that moment and say you're feeling bad about hurting Luke. And I just sit there for a second or two and let him feel that. And then to say, what do you need to do to make things right? And then we have a conversation about what he can do differently next time. So at the end of that conversation in which he was receptive, I addressed the behavior, I built insight, I built empathy, and we talked to, you know, we did some skill building. And so if the whole point of discipline is to teach, I've done that. I'm done. Like there is, you know, and I actually think I'm not universally against consequences. I'm a big fan of natural consequences, but I think sometimes when we impose a consequence just because it's a gut reaction or a, like a a reactive thing, like, well, I have to do something to them so they won't do it again, you know, to make it unpleasant. I think it actually can be counterproductive. I think a lot of the things we do in the name of discipline, like yelling or threatening or, you know, throwing a consequence that we haven't really thought through or spanking for sure or humiliating or any of those things are all things that amplify the nervous system and make them more reactive and less likely to learn. So I think it's a whole shift in how we think about behavior and what his behavior communicated to me when I can reflect later is, okay, he showed me he still needs some skill building in the area of managing anger and working through conflict. And so on, then I can be more thoughtful about he's not a bad kid. He's a kid who needs some skill building in those areas. Let's pause to thank our sponsor, Leslie University Mental Health Counseling Programs, where you can help others transform their lives with creativity and compassion. You can apply a social justice lens to mental health care and achieve your own goals through their master's and PhD programs. Online at leslie.edu slash mental dash health. Now let's return to our podcast. Well, it's such an important message because, I mean, that's what I was just thinking was then what he ended up internalizing was exactly that, that not that he's a bad kid, but that um, there was something he could do about it. Yeah. And then so right away he was redirected into what he could do about it. Yeah. And then the energy was more in the repair. Yeah. But going back to, you know, I think about... um, a lot of times we do get activated around what we need to do about this because now we feel embarrassed that our kid is yeah. just bitten somebody or hurt somebody or made us late or, you know, has done these things that are quote bad things. Yeah. And so it's up to us to handle this awful situation and, you know, they're a reflection on us. And yeah. so then this is part of this activation that you're talking about. And 
you know, without the kind of training that you're talking about where that we have to relearn because these things probably weren't done to us in the correct way (laughs) originally. Right. So our software is loaded with these wrong responses, but it's, it's funny because they get activated and then we think we're being called to attention to correct the problem. Right. In these, you know, okay, here's a problem that, okay, I need to do something about this and we're going to correct it by, and then it's, I think many, many, many times what exactly what you're saying, that the action that we're doing is actually making it, um, sort of amplifying the problem. I think one of the things that's helped me a lot and has helped some of the families I've worked with is to think about our relationship with our child as as the front burner and Mm -hmm. any behavior or conflict as a back burner issue. And that whatever I'm doing, I need to, the relationship is, is primary. And we are going to mess up all the time. We're going to, you know, that stuff's going to get activated. Our software is going to do its thing. And there's, you know, we have that automaticity because of those neural networks we talked about where we, we just do things without awareness or what, because of what we're used to doing. And, you know, the, the brain almost takes like the path of least resistance, like what we're habituated to do. We really need the training that this is the stuff that you're providing in these books and just yeah. talking with other parents that have the new information. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And I love, you know, one of the things that Dan Siegel says is without awareness, we don't have choice. Yes. Once we have awareness, we start having choice. But I think it's a little more complex than, than that, even at times, because I might have awareness about something, but there are moments where it doesn't feel like a choice, you know, oh, like my totally. nervous system just <laughs> exactly. takes over for me, exactly. but then I can reflect on it later. And I think the key to that is, you know, it's really, I actually wrote an article about this on my website about how it's really valuable for our kids when we mess up. Thank goodness. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it's really about repairing with them and going and saying, boy, I did not handle that. Well, I kind of got scary there. Didn't I? Like, what was that like for you? Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm so sorry. You know, I didn't, I remember when I, my, one of my three-year-olds, um, I was yelling at him and he crumpled to the floor and he said, you didn't make a good choice. You know, (laughs) like, you know, the things we teach them, they say back to us. But Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when we, when we have these ruptures, it's really, um, it's in a way kind of an invitation to us to be like, what, what was that about? You know, mm-hmm. why, why did I get crazy there? What did that activate for me? Yes. And your capacity to say, you are right. I did not make a good right. choice. It makes all the difference all in the, the world. All the difference. And oh. it builds relationship. Oh, and there totally. can be more intimacy and more connection. Because if we expect ourselves to be perfect, you know, then our kids think we expect that of them too. And mm-hmm. so when we repair, we're modeling repair and we're saying, you know, it's okay. And we're giving them kind of a bandwidth to be able to make mistakes too. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that's really helpful is to think about how, you know, even if we don't really do anything and we just allow development to unfold, our kids are going to build a lot of these skills anyway. I think we put way too much pressure on ourselves. And I think the, you know, the, the whole, I think one of the ways we can think about parenting in this country is, and maybe in the world, is that there's like a gap. There's a gap between parents who are so hyper-involved and so neurotic about every little bit and piece of their child's life that they're so over-invested, right? Yes. Um, what, that, that's it? disabling the, to the ch- yeah, children. Yeah, it Absolutely. is. It is. And then, we, and then we have parents who are not involved enough at all mm-hmm. and who are you know more in the kind of 
free range um, neglect mm-hmm. and 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 you know just that are that are really checked out they might be physically present but they're so distracted by their devices or their own internal mm-hmm. chaos or right we're getting into some of the attachment stuff right yeah mm-hmm. exactly and you know in interpersonal neurobiology we talk about integration which is really the idea of honoring differences or what's called differentiation and promoting linkage or connection right and that if you have too much linkage like we could call that helicopter parenting. Absolutely. Uh, but if you have too much differentiation, that's a problem too. Right. And so, and these do manifest, of course, in attachment styles. Um, and I think, I think put, taking pressure off ourselves as parents and to say, look, all I've got to do really is show up. And, you know, I love Dan Siegel's The Four S's of Attachment. Just, and honestly, as a clinician, I use this. So can this, you say that for our audience? Yeah, the four S's of attachment, um, which are where we allow the other person, we, we respond in a way that helps the other person feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure. And even, you know, as a parent, I go, oh my gosh, sometimes I don't know what to do. I don't know what to, how to handle the situation. As a clinician, sometimes I go, oh my gosh, am I even doing the right thing here? Is this the right course? Um, or even in my own marriage or in a, my own relationships where I kind of feel stuck sometimes. And if I can always go back to the four S's, okay, if I can do something that allows the person to feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure, and myself too, then that that's then that's something I know, you know, I can I know is gonna make a huge difference. So I think for as far in terms of the parenting stuff, the the reactivity that we have, the reactivity our kids have, that's just part of everyday life. And as development unfolds, their brains grow and they become more integrated. They have lots of other people in their life investing in them. But if we can do those four S's um, as much as we can, that we know that that makes a huge impact. It's it's of course the best predictor for how well kids turn out is that they have secure attachment with at least one person. But what we, when we look at the brain and we look at, you know, what an integrated built, you know, frontal lobe does, those are the outcomes of a kid who has secure attachment. And what I really like about that is that when, when we hear that by itself, it's sometimes people respond like, oh yeah, that sounds really nice. And you're supposed to be nice all the time. And that sounds so sweet. But I also like the other point you made about the, um, that if it's too close and if it's just love, 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 sweet, 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 that that's not this, that isn't actually what, um, you and Dan are talking about or no. what the secure relationships mean, that there also is this differentiation piece. And so uh, accuracy is a big part of it. And a part of accuracy is um, separateness. That's right. And um, and so and safety has to do with uh, recognizing when space is needed or that I can be... Um, I can respond to you, but also hold on to myself. That's right. And so I might connect, but also it doesn't mean that I'm going to give you everything that you want. No. And I think especially if you think about like the word, you know, this is not about helping our kids feel happy every second either, you know, or or indulging them. Exactly. No. And I think, you know, that doesn't let kids feel safe. That takes me back to safe and secure, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think, you know, Again, I, you know, these, that's why these forces are so helpful. You know, if I tell my kid no, but I do it in a way where he feels seen. Yes. Right. Like, you know, I remember having an example of that. Yeah. So I remember having this uh, moment with my, one of my little guys, he did not want to get out of the bathtub. I mean, this is like a typical, you know, end of the day, I'm frazzled. He's frazzled. He's way overtired. 
and I was, you know, I was saying, okay, well, we're going to get out of the bath in about five minutes. Um, no, this doesn't count as my bath. You know, it's like the clock is not counting. He kept saying, you know, this isn't my real bath. Um, and so, you know, another prompt, like, you know, three minutes, we're going to be getting out. So it's time for him to get out. And I say to him, you know, you can either get out of the bathtub by yourself or I will as gently as I can pull you out. And I'm telling myself that because I don't want to, you know, be frustrated and yank his little body out. And um, as I'm yanking him out of the bathtub as gently as I can, and he's screaming bloody murder, I'm saying, I know you're so frustrated. You don't want to get out. It's so hard to get out. So the boundary is still there. I'm still doing what needs to be done. He still feels seen. And, you know, I see what's happening internally for him. And he feels safe. Like he knows that I'm going to do what I say that we have this routine and that, you know, he can completely come unglued and fall apart and we're still, things are going to be pretty much the same. So it's not about just, you know, stroking their hair and, and skipping down the street and picking flowers and stuff that no one does. It's really about showing up and showing. And I think, you know, I, I love this idea of kind of like, you know, it's, it's fine for us to say, I feel really frustrated right now. That's really different from you're frustrating me. You're not doing what, you know, which is, you know, we try to tell them to take responsibility for their own actions. And then we blame our emotions on them. Sometimes I know I've done that, but to just say, you know, I feel really frustrated right now because what happens a lot of times is when we're trying to be that sweet syrupy, perfect parent, <laughs> then we're not authentic. Oh, totally. It's not real. It's yeah. impossible. Right. And so the kid, and like they pay for it afterwards. Exactly. And I think, I think it creates, it's inflammation and, and sickness in our bodies when we, when we don't live authentically like that. But what happens is kids are incredibly savvy um, and they know. So like if they ask you, are you, are you mad right now? And you mm. say, no, I'm not mad. Right. They have two options at that moment. That one option is to say to themselves, obviously unconsciously, I can't trust myself to read other people's emotions or I'm often in my reading of things. I can't trust myself or... I can't trust my parent to tell me the truth. Neither one of those is good. And typically what we know happens is that kids typically will doubt themselves exactly. because they have to be able to trust their parent in order to be safe. So that really sort of undermines their ability to kind of feel what different sensations feel like in their body and kind of perceive reality in the world. So I think it's really important that we're authentic, even in the ugliness and the messiness and, and all of that. And I would say that if we do find ourselves, obviously... Um, being really reactive um, in ways that don't feel good to us or don't feel good to our kids beyond what we feel like we're comfortable with, you know, that's a great time to go get some support and to try to figure out what, you know, peel back the layers curiously and approach with curiosity because, you know, these years do go by really quickly and, you know, having regret and we all will have regret. I mean, I know things now that I wish I had known when my kids were little and we all have regret, but it's a really, that's a really difficult feeling because it matters so much to us. So I think going and, you know, finding a, a therapist or someone where we can kind of start peeling back the layers to find out what's going on there, um, can be really helpful. And I, what I tell parents all the time is if I were to really give you just two pieces of advice, if I could really just whittle everything I know down, I would say that to soothe your child 
the best you can, the most you can, especially when your child is in states of distress, which by the way, often looks like really naughty, bad behavior. And that's when it's hardest for us to stay in that soothing state and to do our own work and to take care of ourselves. So we have the capacity to do it, which is back to that differentiation piece you were talking about. Sometimes we need our own separateness. You know, sometimes we need our own space so that we do have the capacity to show up and be aware in the moment and not be so reactive all the time. We might just need to go take a nap for a while. I often find myself with my colleagues feeling a little um, bit of an outsider as a mental health person. And it comes back to this kind of idea around behavior. And I think it's because what I find is that a lot of mental health professionals are still basically coming up with, like they'll take a, a set of behaviors that's problematic and they'll come up with like a behavior modification or a behavioral only plan without really looking at how behavior is a stress response oftentimes. And so I'll give an example. I won't tell the specific intervention name just because I don't want to get in trouble. But, um, you know, there was a, there was a, um, a situation with a kid where the, the therapist was working with the family and they did this kind of behavior modification system. It's an evidence-based approach. And um, the target behavior was that the child was getting up repeatedly in the middle of the night. This was like a seven-year-old little boy. And so they did this whole behavioral intervention you know, with, you know, rewards and consequences. And it was this behavior mod plan, pretty much only, that was all that they did. And, um, at the end of this eight week period, which was their target time, the kid was, it was considered a success. He was no longer getting out of bed at night. The problem was that this little boy was staying awake most of the night in a toxic stress state. So I think, you know, we do a lot of this and, and mental health people are guilty of this just as much as teachers and parents, oftentimes of creating like a behavioral plan or, or, or doing a behavioral modification approach without seeing that the behavior is really probably adaptive and that it's a stress response. And if we don't deal with the underlying stress response, which might be something like a sleep disorder or a sensory challenge or a learning disability or, you know, something like that, we're really just kind of putting band-aids and we're treating symptoms instead of getting to causes. And so I just really, I feel a, um, a duty and a passion in the mental health world to kind of say, please, let's all keep, you know, there's more and more information coming out all the time, how fortunate we are to be at a time where we know so much to just keep challenging what you know. And I think sometimes when we know things, we don't see things, you know what I mean? We get stuck in what we know. And so to really kind of, you know, say, you know, looking at behavior and looking at the stress response and looking at the brain and the body as part of that and saying, okay, what's really going on here? Let's really peel back the layers. So I think, you know, it's an, it's an ongoing process. I am so appreciative of you sharing this with us. Can you remind us of, uh, if listeners would like to get in touch with you, how yeah. do you do that? So my website is tinabryson.com and that's B-R-Y-S-O-N. And if you're interested in the interdisciplinary uh, clinical practice that I run um, in Pasadena, California, our website there is thecenterforconnection.org. I loved that title because our whole idea is connected relationships lead to connected brains and connected professionals lead to better care. And so I'm really excited about the work we're doing there. So um, people can check out our team and what we're doing on that website as well. That is fantastic. So we've added something new to the podcast. We, it's called Ask a Therapist, and we will be reading our audience questions on the air and giving you a quick answer. So welcome to this part of the, the show. Our first question is from Barry in Los Angeles. He writes, 
Our 13-year-old son has his first phone, and he is mad with power. He is now talking about girls with friends at school, and yesterday he got the number of a girl he, he has a crush on. Uh-oh. Dun-dun-dun. Barry's in trouble. <laughs> Barry caught his son calling her and hanging up. His question is, I really want to insert myself into the situation. Is that okay? Or will it cost me in therapy bills in the future? So thank you, Barry, for that question. So Barry wants to know, do, does he ask his son, does he intervene? Boy, first of all, Barry, I totally get it. The desire. Because, oh, you just listen to him. You just feel so painful. Like, don't hang up. Um, I think for me, what I would say is, you're talking about a 13-year-old, almost always if you try to intervene directly and say, son, this is what you need to do. You're going to become Charlie Brown's teacher. Wow, wow, wow. You know, I say you don't do it directly, but you do it indirectly. And best thing to, for a 13 year old, you talk about yourself. You don't talk about them. You kind of go, oh my gosh, you have a phone. You notice that he has a crush. You can notice what he's doing. Man, I remember when I had my first crush, I was dying to do blank, blank, blank. Anything you want to teach him, I think you just make it all self self-observation. What do you think, Sue? I think that's right on. So it's, you're referencing yourself. So it's self-reference, not advice. Yes. Teenagers hate advice. Right. And I think Barry has to watch out if his son totally doesn't want to talk about this. Back off. And the, I guess the one thing I would add would be if he, if he doesn't want to talk about it, back off. Totally agree. And yet you want to listen, see if there's an open door. So you would look for some distress point that might give you an opening to do exactly what Anne's talking about, which would be to launch the conversation. Not we're going to sit down man to man and talk about this son, but probably more while you're tossing the ball, you know, while you're bouncing a ball back and forth to each other, or just whatever, while you're playing video games next to each other and doing something else where that you're distracted, that you are able to weave it in. And I think the last thing I would say is as hard as it is, sit on your hands and watch him and just let him fall on his knees and scrape it a few times. Then he's going to come to you a little bit more. And that's so hard to do because you just see him heading for that wall. But they've got to hit a few walls and we've got to tolerate it. So Barry, you um, are demonstrating, however, this concept of reflective function. So you are thinking about your impact on your son to the point of writing and asking. So your son is a lucky young man. And I, we all think that he's going to do great in the world. And we would like for you, if you like what we're doing here at Therapist Uncensored, to please share us and subscribe. And if you haven't yet, what really helps us out the most is if you will go on to your podcast player and rate us and review us. That really helps us out. So in addition, you can sign up for our email list at therapistuncensored.com. Okay, we will see you around the bin. And thanks for listening. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly. Patty Alwell and Sue Marriott. Becky Menderville edits this podcast and provides technical support.